Again, good morning, and we're glad you're here. And uh, if you're visiting for one of the baptisms, especially great to have you here. We'd love to see families and friends come out to support. And uh, we hope that you'll feel welcome and encouraged by uh, your worship with us here. And just to let you know, if you are visiting, what we're up to, we're in the sermon time now of the, of the service, we're, we're following a series, we're studying a man in the Old Testament. He doesn't have a book named after him, but he's a, he's a major figure named Elijah. And in some ways, he's, he's really one of the foremost prophets. And you find this in 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings, the end of chapter 18. We're going to pick up where we left off last week and um, pick up in chapter 18, verse 41. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. The passage is there. 1 Kings 18, verse 41. A few years ago, I got to take a little one-morning Saturday Latin crash course. Uh, it was an instructor. He's actually a member of our church, taught a little group. So it, it wasn't even Latin 101. It was like Latin 1. And, uh, and so I'm, and I'm ner- sort of nervous to talk about this in here because we have some scholars in this. We have some Latinists. But um, anyway, we just learned some basic vocabulary, basic uh, how verbs work. And, but there was a sentence that the instructor shared with us, and he may have thought he was wasting his breath. And I don't know why, but it just lodged in my brain. And the sentence is, and I will provide translation for you, omnes fragiles sumus. I think I'm pronouncing this correctly. I think the G is hard. Omnes fragiles sumus. Omnes, all. Sumus, we are. Fragiles, fragile. And it's a quote from actually a Christian classic, sort of a devotional classic that was written in the early 1400s. It would have been composed in Latin. It's by a man named Thomas A. Kempis. It's called The Imitation of Christ. And he just states this short sentence in that work. We are all fragile. And one of the interesting things to me about the Bible and, and I'm not going to really go and develop this point very much, but I'll just recognize in passing, I think it's one of the characteristics that evidences that the Bible is supernaturally given and is not man-made or crafted as a myth or crafted by religious leaders, is that it keeps letting you see the weakness and the failings of its major figures. Old and New Testament, prophets, kings, people who have a -a one-of-a-kind status that we can't describe, Moses, apostles. And the Bible would just let you see them be fragile. And, And this passage is about Elijah, the Elijah, one of the two men who appears after his death on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. This passage lets you see him being very fragile. And my hope is that if you feel fragile, uh, that this will encourage you and be strangely uplifting, even as you see someone sort of despair. Just for context, let let me tell you what led up to this point if you've been here. 
Elijah had confronted this bad king. He's the Israelite king named Ahab. He's bad and his wife may be worse, Jezebel. And Elijah says to him, from God, it's not going to rain. It's going to stop raining. And you know, in, a, in an agrarian economy, that's, that's devastating. Well, Elijah prays it and it stops. It stops for three years. And then later we see uh, Elijah staying at the home of a widow, of a, of a Gentile widow, and her son dies. And um, she doesn't have a husband to take care of her, and this would have been the man who would grow up and take care of her. Her son dies, and Elijah prays that he'll come back to life. There are no prior accounts of resurrections in the Bible, and the boy comes back to life. First resurrection recorded in the Bible when Elijah prayed. And, uh, and then Elijah, this was last week, Elijah squares off with 450 prophets of the god Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And he calls down divine fire on Mount Carmel to consume a burnt offering, publicly vindicating that God is who he says he is and the false prophets are false because Elijah prayed. Uh, And then he's going to pray, Lord, make it resume rain. Please restart the rain. And it does. So this is a man that when he prays, things happen. He's had a front row seat to the fact that God rules everything. So he's going to just stay up and hopeful and joyful, right? Because God is in control, right? 1 Kings 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on a hot Uh, on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank. 
and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, there's no one like you. And our thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. But we thank you, Father, that as you are other, that we don't have to fear in a bad way because you are other in that you are so good, so perfect, so loving. We praise you that you don't change, and we pray that you would help us now to hear you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may or may not have heard the name Charles Spurgeon. He's, uh, he's quoted on the front of the bulletin. And if you don't know about him, really, in um, you know, English speakers don't take up a huge chunk of church history. We take up some of it, but... Um, but among English-speaking Christians, he's regarded as one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived. And his ministry was from uh, around the 1850s to the 1890s. He died in 1892, and, and almost all of his pastoral ministry was in London. And you might say Charles Spurgeon was megachurch before megachurch was cool. He was so gifted that they built this massive sanctuary to hold the people who came to hear him in London. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's still standing. And, uh, and keep in mind, when he would preach to three, four, five thousand people somewhere, he did it without a microphone. But the amazing thing about Spurgeon is that he wasn't just a talking head, super gifted orator. It's, it, it really, if you read about his life, it's like he hit on all cylinders. I mean, that church was ministering to the poor. They established orphanages. They were engaged in the cultural life of the city. They, they weren't just teaching the people who were already Christians. They were telling people who had never heard about Jesus about Jesus. Just this amazing ministry. So if you read about Spurgeon or, or if you've heard about him, you can think, man, this, this guy must have just been on cloud nine watching God work in London. And what you may not know is that Spurgeon struggled pretty much his whole pastoral life with depression. Incredible visible successes. In fact, a friend of mine uh, that, that I went to seminary with, a man named Zach Eswin, wrote a book about this called Spurgeon's Sorrows. Let, let me read one. Uh, here's just one incident. And some people think this really shaped Spurgeon's pastoral ministry. By the time he was in his early 20s, he was, he was kind of a preaching celeb. And he was invited in 1856, he's 22 years old, to preach at the Music Hall of the Royal Surrey Gardens in London. It was this massive building, and they had to use this to hold the people who wanted to come hear him. So there's 7,000 people that he's preaching to without a microphone. He's 22 years old. An attendee yelled, fire. You've heard about this, and I don't think this lands with us the way it, it would have in the past. We're used to sprinkler systems and 
fire retardant materials, but when there were no sprinkler systems and everything's made of wood, to yell fire was, was uh, terrifying. Someone in the crowd yelled fire, causing a stampede of people that left seven dead and 28 injured among a crowd of more than 7,000. Spurgeon was never the same. He's 22. Parishioners and fellow elders reported that the incident had a serious effect on, quote, the nervous system of our pastor. From that point forward, Spurgeon suffered from bouts of deep depression until he was set free by death in 1892. Now, I said this before, I'm going to say it again, that it's interesting that not only in the Bible itself, but in church history that you see people who, whom God used, who believed the truth, who proclaimed it and held to it robustly, and people, I mean, men and women whom God used powerfully, whether it's things like setting up orphanages or proclaiming God's Word powerfully in the Western Hemisphere or proclaiming it maybe where it had never gone before in the Eastern Hemisphere or wherever that these men and women sometimes lapsed into what we would call either despondency or the older term would have been melancholy or out-and-out depression. And again, it's, it's fascinating that here's this episode that apparently God wants us to see. You know, we don't really know a ton about who wrote First Kings. I don't say that to undermine your confidence in the historicity of it. I'm just saying that it doesn't have like the author's name poom, stamped on it like one of Paul's letters. But and it, it can't have been written by Elijah because he's going to pass away. But you've got this account of a very private exchange between an angel and Elijah. And why might that be? And really, from our vantage point, the only answer we can give is that God wants us to hear this and see this very private moment where Elijah seems to be by himself. Here's what I'd like to look at. Um, two points. The pain of discouragement and the God of encouragement. The pain of discouragement and the God of encouragement. And I want you to think about this. This is what's behind the name of this sermon. I'm calling the sermon, Elijah was a man like us. And I borrowed that from the New Testament. That, that phrase is used in the book of James. James is talking about prayer. And he says, you know, Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that it would rain. And it did rain. He's referring to this passage. But, but, but James says, Elijah was a man just like us. He was a man with a nature like us. Don't think of him as having like a different status, different DNA. But he was a real human being like us. And boy, are you going to see that here vividly. So the pain of discouragement. Now again, remember, or this is not going to hit you the way I hope it's going to hit you. Elijah has just had a front row seat to the reality of God. And we talk about God's sovereignty. If you don't know what that term is, that's just a way of describing God is king. God rules over everybody and everything. No one can thwart 
God's plans. He is sovereign. Okay, Elijah has seen that in technicolor. Lord, make it stop raining. Shunk, drought, famine. Lord, make this boy's life come back to him. Wham, the boy comes back to life. Lord, show these people that you're really God by sending fire on this, on this offering. Wham, consumes the, the bull, the stones, the dust, the water. Lord, make it rain. It rains. All right, front row seat. But what else has been going on in his life? And I'm just going to point out two things. Number one is, and I struggled with, with a, a term to call this, so I, I hope this conveys the point. The grind of ministry. And let me show you what I mean by that. The, the grind of ministry. Look in verse 42. Uh, he t- okay, Ahab just saw the fire come from heaven on Mount Carmel. He's an eyewitness. Elijah sends him off to eat and drink. And he says, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and and that that would be the the Sea of Galilee. And he went up and looked and said, or he might be looking toward the Mediterranean. There's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now picture this. And I hope this isn't odd, but... It says he bows down and he puts his face between his knees and he prays. And then he tells his servant to go check. And the servant comes back. There's nothing happening. So he does it again. Go check. There's nothing happening. Go check. There's nothing happening. And, okay, you know. You know from your own experience, if you're a praying person, that I'm sure you've been brought to the point where you wanted to say, Okay, Lord, you've said that your will is that such and such be true. Like, Lord, you've said that you want people to know you and have a relationship with you. And I've been praying for this person for years. I must have prayed for this person, I don't know, 300 times. And you're not answering it yet. Now, it seems to be the case that Elijah knows God is going to send the rain. That's going to be part of him showing who he is. So he prays, and then he prays, and then he prays, and then he prays. And after the fifth time, there's no rain. After the sixth time, there's no rain. And God doesn't come along and say, after the seventh, I'll do it. He just has to keep going. But the big one that seems to affect him so deeply is what we could just call conflict. Uh, Go to the beginning of chapter 19. It says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Ahab saw this, and he goes back and he tells the queen, here's what happened. Now, if if your husband told you all the prophets of Baal were destroyed and they couldn't get Baal to answer their prayers, then this Elijah God... This Elijah guy, he cries out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent fire from heaven. You probably would want to tap the brakes on your bell worship. And it's like her heart gets harder. And she says, verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. 
And so Elijah says what? I have nothing to fear. I will walk in victory and joy because I know that Yahweh is sovereign. Verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And by the way, I think when we read that, we can sort of hear that like he's making a point. Like he's sort of being dramatic. Oh Lord, kill me. You know, almost like I'm done. Let's go back. Like when he prayed that it wouldn't rain, it stopped raining for three and a half years. When he prayed that a boy would come back to life, the boy came back to life. When he prayed that fire would come from heaven, Fire came from heaven. When he prays, Lord, kill me, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think he thinks is going to happen? That he's going to die. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you ever fantasize about dying? And probably what some of you just heard me say is, have you ever premeditated suicide? That's not exactly what I'm asking. But if you have, please talk to somebody. I don't want to just rush past that. Okay. Because lots of other people have felt what you feel. And lots of Christians have felt what you feel. It doesn't have to be me, but I'd, I'd sure be willing to do that. And I'll buy the coffee or I'll connect you with somebody. But please talk to somebody. Because that is not God's best for you. But what I'm talking about is, have you ever fantasized about dying? Because it's really like, well, then I could really rest. Uh, What you need to know is you're in a long line of God's people that have felt that way. If you've ever fantasized about just dropping dead, not at your own hand, but just dropping dead, there's a lot of people who believe in God, really do believe in God, and love God and know God, and believe God is sovereign and that God is in control, who have felt the same thing, and I want you to know that. And often what leads up to it is just the grind. You know, I pray... And I serve him. And, you know, I read these passages about joy and life abundant and refreshment. And I don't feel refreshed. And I don't feel like I have abundant life. And I don't feel like I have joy. And you know what I would love would be to die. I just want you to hear one of God's people saying that. And then you have the God of encouragement. And look at how God shows who he is. Just just a couple of things. Number one, look how he shows that he cares about people in general. He cares about people in general. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. Now that just, that would sound so hollow. There's like no plants anymore after three and a half years of no rain. 
And then verse 45. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, but there was a, and there was a great rain. When, uh, when my wife and I were in Israel a couple of months ago, we heard, we heard a tour guide say, it's funny, he was an Israeli tour guide and he quoted the monkeys. The American, like 60s, two E's, the monkeys. And it was a song about that, uh, you know, when he's not getting along with his girlfriend, the, 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 it's like rain. And he said, I've never understood that as an Israeli. He's saying that rain is bad. Rain is good. You know, somebody that lives in the Middle East, he says, I want to tell you, rain is good. I think when we hear, wow, the clouds got dark, it started raining, that, that doesn't land with us the way it would land with them. They, this is God restoring the food and economy of a region. Because they all know him? Because they all love him? No. He's just being kind. They don't deserve the rain to come back. But look at this in particular with Elijah. That that God doesn't just care about people in general, but he cares about the individual. Look in verse 5. He lay down, he slept under a brim tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again, which is amazing to me. You just saw an angel supernaturally provide you food, and then you just sort of went back to sleep. I think he's, he's overwhelmed. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. Uh, if we had the eyes to see it, uh, if we lived by faith and not by sight, what you would see all around you is evidence that God loves you. Uh, the theologian John Calvin said that this world is the theater of God's glory. And that's everything from sunsets to the friend that you enjoy, to the music that you enjoy, to the little blossom that maybe no one else is going to notice but you, that doesn't have to be there. Uh, To me, a lot of times it's humor. Do you have a friend like this? I have friends that... I'll text this friend. I'll, like, I'll throw him a softball, a funny friend. Just, I'll just kind of send him a thought, like as I'll lob him a softball, and I'll look at my phone, and then you see the, the reply bubbles start. And I will start almost crying laughing because I can, feel, I can feel the wheels of their funny mind already going, and that I'm about to laugh my head off. That Like that is even God's kindness. But you know, if you're really sad, when you think about this, have you ever had a time where you're really down and then sort of you come out of it and you go, wow, look how great the yard looks. Or wow, look how great the trees look. They looked like that the whole time. You know, the skies and the birds and the trees and the flowers were doing their thing the whole time. We just we couldn't, we couldn't see it. But you know, you can be so down, discouraged, overwhelmed that that doesn't register with you. Uh, And you might even be sitting here thinking, well, man, he never sent me an angel. He never sent me an angel with bread and water. 
he did send us a messenger. Uh, the messenger actually is bread. I am the bread of life. Um, I'll give you living water. And I want you to think about this as we're going to this. This is not filler. But this is actually, in a particular way, God saying to his people, you know, I actually do care about you. I want you to remember my son. I sent you my son, but I want you to remember that I love you, and I want you to remember that I sent you my son. I'm going to end with this. This is, uh, here's what one writer said about the Lord's Supper. She writes, I want to start a campaign to revive an older name for the Lord's Supper. And here's more Latin. The viaticum, or the viaticum. Viaticum was a Roman term. It designated the food, clothes, and money that a Roman magistrate took with him when he traveled on state business. It was the necessaries he needed to get him through his trip. And she writes that the name for the last time you ever took the Lord's Supper before you died was dubbed the Weaticum. That it was the meal for your journey to heaven. And then she writes this. Sometimes early Christians used Weaticum to designate not just the deathbed Eucharist, but any Eucharist. The Eucharist, the Weaticum, was the necessaries for our journey through this life. It was, in the words of one minister, the sacrament of maintenance. It's like what the angel said to the exhausted and broken prophet Elijah, collapsed in a sleep under a broom tree. The angel waked him and said, Arise and eat, else the journey will be too great for you. And then she writes, That is the Eucharist. If I did not eat, the journey would be too great. Do you feel overwhelmed and discouraged? You're normal. And so God sets this table to say, I do see you. I, I do love you. My son did live and die and rise. And I want you to keep walking. Amen. Let's pray. Father, especially as we now go from your word to your table, we pray that you would enable us to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you for physical bread, physical wine, real food, real drink, by which you say to us, take heart, I care, keep walking until we rest. We thank you for sending us the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.